Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Uh, great to have you here on the Smart Investing Show. Got a lot of things to talk about today. We're going to start off talking about PC sales. Now, you might be saying, hmm, what's up with that? They don't do anything. Well, we're going to change your opinion on that. Also, talk about commercial real estate, what's going on in commercial real estate, and growth companies. We're going to talk about those growth companies. Are they as good as you think they are? Well, we'll go into what we think about them and based on facts. Chase? Oh, yep, absolutely. Excited to cover the show there, cover those topics today, and uh, obviously much more. And if you want to join this show, you got a, a stock you're looking at buying, selling, holding. Again, we call them companies. Give us a call here. Phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, 833-288-0973. And again, we'll break down those fundamentals and, and give you our uh, unbiased opinion about uh, what we think about that particular company there. Well, well, let's talk about the uh, PC sales because we're, we're always in tune, Chase, and I always, you know, reading different things, looking at different things. And, and when I saw this, well, we have seen global shipments of PCs decline to 245 million uh, units this year, a drop of nearly 100 million from 2021 when global shipments reached 342 million units. Now, you may think that the PCs are going the way of the dinosaur. But that is not the case. Personal computer companies are preparing new PCs that will begin arriving within the next few months and have AI in them. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of the CPU, which is a central processing unit, a GPU, which is a graphics processing unit, and now there is a NPU, which is a neural processing unit. Now, the NPU can actually process very large data sets efficiently and will pick up most of the AI computing requirements. Just recently, Intel unveiled an AI PC acceleration program, which will use AI techniques on such things as content creation, security, audio effects, and video collaboration. Now, it is expensive and time-consuming to run AI in the cloud, which has 1.76 trillion parameters. Again, let me repeat that. 1.76 trillion parameters, but a PC can actually be much more focused on certain areas as opposed to the entire universe of AI. Now, maybe the next couple of years, we'll see a big boom in those PC sales. 1.76 trillion. How can you even comprehend that number? <laughs> I, yeah, it, it's a lot. I mean, you know, and we've talked a lot about AI on this show. And don't get us wrong when we say, oh, we're not big advocates, essentially, of AI. Right. And the thing that we point out is that, you know, we don't want to chase AI companies, so to speak. Oh, my gosh, it's all the hype. But there is going to be AI in the future. You just don't know who's going to be the big benefactors from that, which is why we don't want to still overpay for, I'm going to say, the NVIDIAs of the world. Who knows what that competition landscape is going to look like over the next three to five years? There could be new companies that kind of like NVIDIA changed the landscape. Right. There could be a new company two years from now. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, where did this company come from? Now they start taking market share from NVIDIA. NVIDIA is grossly overpriced. Stock price plummets. 
And, and this just is a way because, again, you and I was thinking the same thing. Like, well, will PCs be using more just as a kind of like a terminal? Well, no, you can put the right information there. So if you're maybe a paralegal, there'll be a PC for paralegals with all the AI information just for the paralegal. You don't need all the other stuff that's yeah. going to be in there, that $1.76 trillion, yeah. uh, I want to say dollars, $1.76 trillion uh, of parameters, of parameters yeah. information, whatever you want to call it. Um, so that is going to be, a, I, I think, a good boom for companies like Intel, maybe HP, Dell, because the PC will be something that will be specialized for certain industries, and I think it's going to be, and I, we may not see the 342 million shipments, but we could see maybe 290, 300 maybe, uh, an increase from where we're at, which means what? More profits for the companies and chip makers. Yeah, and, and the thing, too, that I look at here is, you know, the important part is you don't need maybe all those other features. Yeah. So, you know, maybe not everybody needs to buy the NVIDIA chips. Because if you're a small business, let's say, and again, small businesses occupy a lot of this country's employment. Oh, yeah. Why do you need to spend, you know, a lot of money on the, the best AI tools when you may not even be using a fraction of the, the benefits? So, well, don't buy the expensive ones. Buy something that's actually useful to you that you can afford that still enhances your business at the end of the day. That's where I think AI is going to be... Uh, a lot different than people anticipated. It's not just going to be, you know, NVIDIA and everybody's using NVIDIA right. chips. And, and yes, don't get me wrong. Right now, they are the best AI chips out there. But, you know, I'm going to say somebody like ourselves, we're a small business. I don't need NVIDIA's AI <laughs> chips at our company. But something like this, where it's a more personalized AI experience that maybe does help you with your particular business, yeah, that could be a great tool for small businesses, perhaps. Well, and maybe more more like uh, automobiles, because if you're a single person and you just drive, you you don't need to have a big vehicle. You just get, oh, I'll just get a Toyota so I can go back and forth to work. Work. If you're a plumber, you can't get that Toyota. Yeah. You need a big van to put all the tools and parts and everything else in. So it'll be more objective on what you want to fit your needs for your computing needs and and uh, what's going to work for you best. So you'll have different type of computers for different things, laptops. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I do want to pull the inflation spin here too. And, and this is something too that, that makes us more efficient as a workforce. And if we can actually implement these processes over the next several years, I mean, that helps on the inflation front because, again, we have a more efficient, more productive workforce. So it's something to keep an eye on. I mean, it's something I'm I'm excited about to see how it transpires. But again, it doesn't mean I'm going to be chasing the AI companies higher and, and overpaying for those businesses. This reminds me of back when the internet started and you had all these internet companies, all these different things going on. And, oh, this is going to be be the way of the future. And yes, it was, but not for every single company that came out there, but it was more of a benefit for companies. I think the same thing with AI. There's going to be companies that will benefit from it, um, like I think PCs will. will. And I, I do wonder, you know, I'm, I'm going to pick on our company Apple here. Oh, um, Apple, Apple. <laughs> it, going back several years, I mean, when I uh, Apple kind of revolutionized the phone with the smartphone, that, that created a super cycle, so to speak, and a huge increase in, in the way phones were sold. I, I do wonder if maybe this, maybe we do get back to you know the PC sales reaching somewhere around 350 million, mm -hmm. because perhaps this does really improve the workforce, and all of a sudden it creates what I'm going to call a super cycle in PCs at the end of the day. And you got to remember, a lot of people again they bought laptops in 2020, 2021. Those now are starting to become kind of outdated, so to speak. Right. Especially you look into 2025, 2026. 
now you have these PCs that do a lot more than the PCs that were created in 2021, it could create, again, that potential super cycle. And you bring up Apple, and, and uh, that's why I always tell people, get the newsletter, because we're not going to talk about it too much today. But I know that uh, in the newsletter that went out on Friday at uh, 5 o'clock, I believe we talked about Apple, where their Mac sales were down, like, I think, 25 or 30%, and they barely talked anything about AI. But yet, the stock still trades over 30 times earnings. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, their sales, I think, were down 3% or something. Yeah. I mean, it's just you're paying for growth, but getting no growth, it's uh, it's a... Uh Anomaly. Yeah, so we'll, exactly. We'll have to see what happens there. Yep, yep. Get the newsletter. Uh, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com, and uh, sign right in the middle and get the newsletter there. Let's talk about uh, commercial real estate because I know people are concerned about commercial real estate, but I believe there are some great opportunities given the extremely, extremely negative sentiment. Uh, the office sector has been of great concern, but when we listen to the conference call from a public REIT we own in the portfolio, I remain quite optimistic. The CEO pointed to a uh, many major positives, including new tenant leasing marking the 11th consecutive quarter at or above pre-COVID levels. Leasing has been extremely strong this year, and the company expects to see the highest amount of new tenant leasing since 2016. Let me repeat that because you think, oh, my gosh, that things are falling apart. He said they expect to see the highest amount of new tenant leasing since 2016, which is, what, seven years ago? I, I mean, I thought nobody was renting in offices <laughs> anymore. I mean, it, it, again, this is it, – it's very interesting data, and there's more here too because, I mean, you look at the retention rates for this particular company. They look good coming in at 70%. So you can maintain a large book of your 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 renters and you're bringing in new business, that really helps the the capacity, the utilization rate, essentially, of your whole book of, you know, available office space. I mean, that is a huge, huge benefit. And I got to say, too, don't get me wrong. There are some definite cracks in the sector, but be careful throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In fact, JLL, which is, again, a huge real estate company here, they recently reported that after analyzing its vast data set of office buildings comprising over 2.7 billion rentable square feet across the top 25 MSAs, that stands for Metropolitan Statistical Area, 50% of the sector's vacancy is concentrated in the bottom 10% of the office stock. Now, I, I just got to say, I believe the office still has a place in our economy, but it is a strong Class A properties that will remain. I mean, you look at these Class B, Class C buildings, that's the bottom 10% of office stock. And again, they are occupying 50% of all vacancies. Yeah, people don't want to go back to work if you're having to go to a crappy office. Yeah. <laughs> but you have a good office with good amenities. You know, it looks nice. It's got that curb appeal. Yeah, people are still going back. And it's funny on this particular um, conference call we listened to, the CEO pointed out and saying, I mean, <laughs> Zoom has a back-to-work, back-to-office policy. <laughs> you know, the office still has a place in our, our our society. And we talked about this a lot. As a business, it's very hard to not have people come in and, you know, kind of interact with one another. You just don't have that same team approach, which is why, again, 
the office is not going anywhere, in my opinion. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. And it's, it is changing because we talk about the Class A, which is where you need to be. And also certain areas. Uh, look at yeah. the economy that you're in as well. And, and one mistake that investors make, they'll, they'll kind of focus. So you're here in San Diego. Oh, you, you know, this building I saw closing. It's empty. That's one building. I, I saw somebody last night. We, we went to an event last night. And they go, do you realize how big our country really is? I mean, our country is massive. You can even put your arms around it. So don't think that you look at one little thing or you have a friend on the building like, oh, my gosh, they're at 40% rent. That's one building. Look at different economies. Look at different buildings. And it, as I said, it's changing because they are converting some Class C and Class B buildings to uh, condos and stuff, using those for other reasons. But all that does is it depletes the amount of office available for rent, and that's what you want. You want a low supply. Demand will be there. Our population is growing. We have a very strong jobs market. So it, 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 this is not the time to be out of the real estate market. It's giving you a gift now if you know what to do and buy the right ones because uh, – and the yields on some of these uh, REITs, they're, they're, they're 6%, 7%, 8%. Uh, you lock that in, uh, but you got to do the research to find the right ones. Yeah, I'm going to pull out one that, that's not the one that we own. So sure. you can maybe look at, you know, kind of process elimination if you, you want to get uh, really into it. But there's a office read also. that They're one of the larger ones. It's called Highwood Properties. And right now they're trading for 3.76 times the FFO. Right. That's the fund from operation. I mean, they're still generating tremendous amounts of cash flow, but nobody wants to be in the sector. I mean— we know the historical average is around 16, 17 times. Again, 3.76. I mean, you're paying so little for the cash flow and Highwood, you get 11% dividend yield. Wow. I mean, it is just mind-blowing that you can pick up these types of properties at such low valuations. And don't get me wrong, you're going to have volatility here. And so, oh, the 10-year went up again. Oh, my gosh, the stock goes down. But I really think if if you're – Looking out three to five years, I mean, you can find some tremendous opportunities. And I'm not telling you to go out and buy Highwood. I, I haven't looked at their kind of stock yeah. of where their real estate is. I haven't looked at their vacancy rates, anything like that. But I just know they were one of the bigger players. And frankly, a little little tip for you, I think it's worth the research to see if that's a good company to add in your portfolio because it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and we and again, I'm glad you pointed out. We're not recommending you go out and buy high wood, but we're saying, yeah, do do the research on it. And the other thing too that you don't pick up, you brought off, you know, the FFO funds from operations. Um, we're not big on real estate, saying, oh, real estate's going to go up, you know, 20% per year. But as a long-term investor, you collect that 11% <clears throat> dividend. <clears throat> I think you said it was. Well, real estate will appreciate, and just think 10 years down the road, it's not going to be the same level. Even if it's up 50%. And you get that 11%. Your, your return is very good. So, you know, look at them. They should be, I believe, the right REIT in your portfolio, a certain percent. And, you know, one thing I'm, I'm actually really excited about is we, we get to talk to uh, the CEO, CFO, and uh, chief operations officer from the REIT that we own next week. Mm -hmm. And there's I have a couple questions that, that I do want to ask because you look at these REITs right now, they're trading at price tangible book values of like, sometimes 0 0.3, 0 0.5. That means you're paying, you know, 50 cents on the dollar for, again, those tangible assets of the properties. But the thing you have to understand with real estate and the way the accounting works 
is you're not looking at the market value of those properties. You're looking at what I believe is a discounted value because the book value of those properties is what they paid for those properties minus all the depreciation that's gone into it over time. So one of the big questions I have is, do you guys have any estimations for you know the market values of those properties? Right. And it's going to be hard because if you don't sell it, you don't really know the true market value. Right. But it could even be undercounting what you're paying for those properties looking at the price of the annual book value. I mean, it, it's just a tremendous value opportunity in my belief. And, and as we talked about earlier, if they're converting more B and C buildings over into condos, the demand is going to be higher on the other side which will push up those price of uh, commercial buildings. So they could sell them at a much higher price. And I'm being very conservative saying 10 years, 50%. Could be five years, 50%. So, I mean, that's, you know, you, know, that's, you add that to that dividend, you're talking 20% per year return. Yeah. The other big thing you want to understand <coughs> when you're looking at this real estate is their, their debt maturities, the debt profile. When is the debt coming due? If they have a lot of debt, large amount of debt coming due within the next six months, they're going to have to refinance it. So you want to look at, again, the maturity schedule at the end of the day, too. So, I mean, there's a lot of considerations. And if you do it improperly and just throw money into a REIT, that's a huge risk. Yeah. You don't want to do that. This requires a lot of research to make sure you're, you're getting into the right companies. Yep, exactly. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, growth companies. And uh, by the way, phone number is 833-288-0973. But uh, people and investors always like the excitement of growth companies with high expectations that they will have great returns. This week, the growth company WeWork uh, filed for bankruptcy in New Jersey. This company has never seen a quarterly profit, but yet the stock price did reach a high of $130.80. It currently trades for less than a dollar. The big problem with this growth company was excessive expansion, which caused excessive losses and rising debt that they, well, simply could not pay. Yeah, at our firm, Willis Asset Management, I still continue to believe, as we have for many, many years, that we will not invest into or hold a company that has no earnings and high debt. We may have missed some huge gains on a few companies. Again, we talk about we've missed the NVIDIAs, we've missed the Teslas, but we've also never gotten involved with the Pelotons, never gotten involved with the pot stocks, never gotten involved with the WeWorks. And we continue to believe that being cautious and not having losses from companies filing bankruptcy is a far better plan for a long-term return. And also, I think it is a much easier way to look at investing when you look at the emotional side as well. It, it just helps to have something, and, and I've been doing this now for well over 40 years in the finance world, but to look at something and look at a, an income statement, a balance sheet, a cash flow statement, and know you have something as opposed to a WeWork, which was a concept, which concept made sense, but it just didn't work. Well, WeWork didn't work, I guess. But you, 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 you're shooting for something, and this works. And same thing with biotechnology, technology, uh, many different things where they have no earnings or very small earnings. Yes, you're going to have your um, Amazons and your other ones that will do extremely well. But overall, you're not going to do that. What does happen any time for investors is you hit something like <clears throat> at Amazon, and then you sell it because you think you've done very well. You think you understand what you're doing. Yes, I know how to buy these growth companies. And then you turn around, you buy a WeWork, you lost all your profits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely something to understand is why you made money. And a lot of times people, I'm going to say, get lucky, and they don't know why they did well. And then they try and replicate that success, and they end up taking huge risks and, and losing out. And I do kind of want to go through the timeline on WeWork just because 
Sure. This is within the last year. I mean, WeWork's problems really go back over, I'm going to say, the last four years. And you look at this, I mean, it, frankly, the, the valuation decline is even worse if you look at the longer term. January 2019, you got to remember, WeWork was valued at $47 billion in the private market. Woo. Huge, huge valuation. It was one of the exciting companies that everybody was looking forward to that IPO to get involved in. Everybody loved the CEO. I I think his name was uh, Newman or something. But then in August 2019, they publicly filed for the IPO. The numbers kind of started to come out on how much money they were losing. And then the problems and the chaos with the CEO had really kind of surfaced. By September 2019, the market valuation was cut to $10 billion. So in the private market, again, $47 billion. All of a sudden, more information came out. And this is why we don't like buying private investments. Right. Because everything could be great. And then all of a sudden, you get all this information. It's like, oh, no, this company is not worth $47 billion. It's really <laughs> worth $10 billion. Well, long story short, they, they put off the IPO. And then in October 2021, they go public with a $9 billion valuation after merging with one of our favorite type of entities, a SPAC. Oh. <laughs> so this was just riddled with high risks at the end of the day. And then, of course, November 2023, they announced Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and the stock falls to $0.84 cents with a valuation of $44.5 million. $47 billion to $10 billion to $44.5 million. Yeah, what's that? 100th, I believe that is. Yeah, and, and yeah. the thing you look at, too, is, is we pointed out that stock price this year. It's actually worse because they did a 40 for one. I'm sorry, a one for 40. One for 40. Reverse stock split in August of this year. So I was like, I was looking at it and I'm like, they went public at like $10 a share. How did they hit 100? There's no way that stock went up 10 times. Well, you look at the chart for it. Their IPO price with the reverse stock split was really like $500 a share. And you Ooh. look at the stock price going back to 2021, it is just a steady decline. There's a couple of little bumps in there along the way. Like, oh, maybe they are making a comeback. But for the most part, it is just down, down, down. And you know what that does too, Chase, is it makes it so people say, oh, the stock market is rigged. You know, you, you're going to lose money. It's terrible. No, you did a silly thing. And and we have our issues with our companies that we invest in, but we can see the cash flow. We can see the debt. We can see the earnings. We can make financial decisions based on that. When you're just looking at a concept for a company, there's no financial decisions. And then you think the whole stock market is crazy. And no, we, we talk about it not being a stock market, but a market of stocks. And be wise when you go into that stock market to choose wisely the good investments that will. And maybe you won't get a 1,000% return over the next uh, year or two, but I would much rather have an average of 10% return over the next 5 to 10 years than shoot for a 1,000% return and lose all, if not uh, more. And, and I'm just going to say it. It, it cracks me up when people say, oh, you can't make money in the stock market. Oh, the stock market's rigged. How in the world can you say that when you look back over the long term of investing <laughs> and the returns that you've generated by good, sound investing? How can you say that you can't make money in the stock market? It is the silliest argument. And, and we have this chart that we show people. You go back to 1926. Yeah, it's a long time. Had you invested $10,000, by the end of 2021, value stocks, had you done value investing, 
were worth over a billion dollars. How can you say you can't make money in the <laughs> stock market when you well, look at those long-term results? Well, wait a minute. That would take some research and hard work, and people just want to gamble with it and just say, oh, yeah, I heard about this, and this WeWork thing is going to be great, and, and they'll put their money into it with, with no research, no understanding, no financial backing. And I hate to say this, too, but there's some financial advisors that do the same thing. They don't know what they're doing, oh. and, and it's terrible. We've seen people come through where, like, well, why would your financial advisor do that? I don't know. He couldn't even answer any questions I asked him about it or her about it. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I understand it's frustrating during difficult times like we've seen now. I mean, you look over the last two years, pretty much, again, everything is is down. You look at all the indices. I mean, you look at, you know, value investing in the last two years for the most part. It's down over the last, yeah, you haven't made money investing for two years. But the worst thing you can do is stop investing because, again, history has proven time and time again that long-term investments they work out. And again, I'll go back to the tech boom and bust. For three years, 2000, 2001, 2002, the stock market was down. Well, should you have sold and got out? Well, gosh, you've missed out on a huge run up, right. even if you invested at the peak in 2000. And you said, I'm going to let you say it, uh, you said you, there's a new saying out. What was the thing? Yeah, the uh, new saying right now is T bill and chill. So you just <laughs> buy T bills and just hang out. And okay. it, it just, I. It's the biggest mistake that you can make in the long term. If you don't need the money for five, ten years, if you're looking at retirement, don't T-bill and chill. If you're looking at, I'm going to say, buying a house or maybe doing a remodel in six to 12 months. Sure. Yeah, yeah. then you can T-bill and chill if you want. But using that for your long-term investments is, I don't think, a, a wise decision at the end of the day. Well, I've been doing you know, in the finance world for over 40 years, and those rule of thumbs, those sayings never pay off. They sound good. People get excited about them. Like I remember when before, don't be sore, buy more. (laughs) They're always trying to make you feel better, but you get back to the fundamentals. Like, no, you got to invest. And if you're a long-term investor, do not be buying T-bills. Let's go back because we we get quite a few emails now. We're going to increase that more as we go forward that uh, to get the questions more by emails. Uh, By the way, I'm talking about that now. Also to sign up for the newsletter at our website. Uh, But if you want to send us uh, uh, an email question, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And also, too, that's where you can get the uh, email newsletter. Uh, just right in the middle of the page, it says newsletter. Uh, again, smartinvesting2000.com. Sign up for that, set up for that newsletter. We've got a lot of other good topics there. I'll just kind of tease you with a couple of them uh, that is on that newsletter on Friday. Uh, broker commission rates. This was another good one that uh, we really liked. Uh, UAW strike. Talk more about that. Uh, you mentioned already the Apple stock. What's going on there? Student loans. So there's many different things on that newsletter for you. It is free. It goes out every Friday at 5 o'clock. Again, the website smartinvesting 2000 Com. Well, let's take one of these newsletters that we got uh, from a Steve, and a uh, very short uh, question here. He says, I don't own, heard positive indications on Fox Business about Cisco. So Cisco, their symbol is CSCO. Let's take a look at Cisco and see what those uh, that company looks like there. Uh, they are in the communication uh, equipment industry, only about 1.1% uh, short on the float side there. Institutional owned about 78%. Uh, PE ratio right now, 17.1 versus 23.9. That's a good start. Uh, price to sales, not so good, 3.8 versus 1.7. Price to book value, 4.8 versus 2.7. And price to cash flow, 10.9, just under the industry average of 11.4. Now, they have a nice peg ratio, 2.3 versus 4.1. 
The earnings per share of last year for Cisco up 10.8%. Unfortunately, half the industry to 23.8%. Uh, sales did climb by 9% for Cisco, also about half the industry at 18%. The analysts give a Cisco a five-year growth rate of 6.1%. The industry a little bit better, 7%. We do see Cisco pays a nice dividend of 3%, only use 50% of the earnings to pay that out. And then look at the balance sheet. Uh, current ratio 1.4 versus 1.6. That's okay. Debt to equity, very good for Cisco. 0.2 versus 2.6. Gosh, they could actually uh, raise their debt a little bit if they can find a good use for that money because that's a very low debt for such a big company. Uh, net profit margin, 22.1 versus 8.1. Return equity, very good, 28.4. Uh, above the industry at 26.7. Chase? Yeah, so current price here for Cisco is $52.59. I see the, the 52 week low is $44.30 and the high here, $58.19. Year to date, the stock's uh, it's an okay, it's actually up about 10% for the year. And this is one I always like to point out talking about growth companies. You go back to, again, the hype and the excitement in 2000. Just kind of looking at the chart, I don't have the actual data, but you can see about in. March of 2000, the stock was trading about $75, $80 a share. I think it's at $52.59 now. So it hasn't reached the the hype of the tech boom. What is this now? Over 23 years? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, again, why you need to be very careful chasing high-growth names. And Cisco, I mean— you remember back then, oh, it was yeah. all the rage. Everybody yeah. wanted to buy Cisco. So uh, just a, another lesson of why you need to be careful investing in, in exciting high-growth names. Now, looking out to July 2025, the company does report on a fiscal basis here. The estimated earnings per share is $4.22. Wood gives a target sell price of $70.05. So unfortunately, still not back to the, <laughs> the, the height of the tech boom. But I mean, that's still a, a decent return here, trading around you know, 12, 12 and a half times those future earnings. And it, it's a company that I like in the tech field, to be honest with you. It, they're not expecting huge growth, but it looks like they're expecting earnings growth of 4 or 5%, and you get it at a good value. You get a decent dividend. Uh, again, it's not going to set the world on fire, but you get, I'm going to say, 5% growth on earnings, a little bit more multiple expansion. You could do quite well with this stock, I think. And again, you're not going to make 50% in a year, but... No, no. And, and this is a company that I, that I like, and uh, we we held this company. I've held, held I think, two or three times over the last 20 years or so. After but the the crash. After the crash, yeah. <laughs> I waited for it to go down, then I, then I bought it. Uh, but we sold it, I think, around current levels. Uh, we are all invested now. But I, I do like a company like Cisco, nice earnings stream, nice dividend. Uh, they're not going to be replaced by AI. Could benefit from AI. Who knows on that? We, we don't do a lot of research on it now because we don't uh, own it. But it's just a, a, a good company that, uh, and again, the debt, only 0.2. I mean, it's it's a good business and 3% dividend. And, and that debt is actually so important. And I don't think they're going to take on more debt because, again, they're they're not really a high-growth company. So for them to borrow money at, let's say, even 5 6%, they would now have a higher hurdle rate right. than borrowing money at 2%. But what that does mean is they're not like other companies where it's like, oh, shoot, now we're going to have to refinance debt. It's going to ha- have higher interest expense. It's going to drive problems for earnings per share. They can probably pay off that debt if it does mature over the next five years without an issue with their their given cash flow. And and one thing, too, that they could be doing, because we didn't look deep enough to it, I I would bet they're probably doing some some type of stock buyback. I would would assume. I mean, the the, the valuation on this company is great, so I I would assume they're doing a stock buyback. I did want to say, too, 
one question we get from people a lot is why don't you use kind of multiple specific kind of standards for an industry? So again, mm-hmm. we use about a 16.6 times multiple on our earnings. And I'm going to use Cisco here as an example of why we don't do that. Now, it's in the tech space. Let's just say the average PE over the last 20 years for the tech space is you know 25 times earnings. I would never want to assign a 25 times multiple to Cisco because they're just not having that growth. So that's why we always say we use that 16.6 across all industries because at some point, those companies, they're not going to be growing as fast as they once were. They don't justify those higher multiples. So we just want to, again, look at saying what is a fair price for those earnings. And the long-term average, again, over history, is around 16, 17 times. Yeah, and that's over all companies because there was a time that uh, uh, utilities never went above like 10 or 12. Well, that changed. So things do change, and that's why we always look when we invest long-term, that 16.6 is because it's an average over all companies. And uh, tech can be very... Very volatile. We'll, we'll put it that way. So, Steve, I hope that uh, helps you out. We do like uh, the way Cisco looks. Do your own research to make sure that uh, uh, there's other things we did not miss on that quick evaluation for you. All right. Phone numbers here, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Right now, it's time to talk to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Harrison, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, we got a great topic today because I, I, I can't believe this is November already and almost halfway through November. Talk about 2024 tax and retirement changes. Doesn't I thought things stay the same all the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, Brent. I mean, this year has gone by fast. Um, we're getting close to it. And as we get closer to the end of the year, more information is being released about 2024. Um, so each year, the IRS adjusts the tax brackets due to inflation. And in 2024, the tax brackets are being adjusted up 5.4%. That sounds like a tax increase. It is not. This is a good thing is as it allows slightly more of everyone's taxable income to now fall or fall into lower tax brackets and it results in a tax reduction. Uh, the standard deduction is also changing. Uh, the standard deduction acts as a deductible expense for most taxpayers. Most people um, do not itemize due to the current uh, tax law, but uh, the standard deduction is increasing for married couples from 27700 and it's being adjusted up to 29200 Plus, if you're 65 or older, you get an extra $3,100 deduction added to that. For single filers, it is increasing from $13,850 up to $14,600, plus another $1,950 if you're over 65. Also, there's been a bill that has passed the House Ways and Means Committee that was going to increase the standard deduction an extra two to $4,000, depending on how you file, um, but it hasn't passed the House or Senate yet, uh, but that's something that is, is possible that would be um, potentially active for 2024, but both the tax brackets and the standard deductions are being increased for 2024. Again, all those things are good things. Depending on your income, this is going to result um, in savings of a few hundred dollars to potentially a few thousand dollars, um, depending on what bracket that you fall into. Now, this adjustment happens every year with inflation. There's nothing that you have to do to get the benefit. Um, it'll automatically be filtered through your, your payroll, and ultimately, um, when you file your taxes, it'll be filtered through. Um, also, changes coming. Uh, retirement account contributions are receiving an increase as the maximum contribution for 
employer plans like 401ks, 403bs, 457s, that's increasing from 22,500 up to 23,000. Plus, you can save an extra $7,500 if you are over 50. IRA contributions are increasing from 6,500 to $7,000. Uh, plus an extra $1,000 catch-up contribution if you're over 50. Um, so with these upcoming changes, everyone should review their income and savings plans for 2024 and make any necessary adjustments, whether it's increasing your contributions, changing where you are saving, adjusting where you're pulling funds from if you're in retirement or you or you need income. Um, each year, it's helpful to make these adjustments so that you're always being as smart as you can with your money. One question I have for you on that standard deduction, Harrison, is you say it's an extra 3100 if you're 65 or older. Uh, is that uh-huh. per spouse? Or it, is it? it 3100 is for the total married couple. So if okay. you if you are married and you have one spouse who's 65 or older, then it's half of that. So $1,550 per person. So if you have two spouses, they're both 65 or older, then it's a total of $3,100 extra standard deduction. So that means instead of 29200 it's, you know, 30, 32300 or, or whatever that is. Yeah, 32300 Yeah, 30, $32,300. You know, it's, it, one way I was kind of thinking while we were talking is standard deduction is almost just, you know, that means you can make $32,000 and it's tax-free yeah. essentially. So it, it, again, if you're in retirement, that's why it's so important, again, to kind of understand these laws and the, the changes because – I mean, $32,000 worth of, I'm going to say, tax-free income is a, a great tool that, if used properly, can really change some things, shift some accounts around. I mean, it, it's it's a big benefit there. And also, too, if well, you... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you're right, Chase. It is. It, it makes sense, especially when you're in retirement, because basically the first you know, $32,000 of your income is taxed at 0%. That's essentially what it means. But you know, in retirement, you likely have some ordinary income, which is the taxable income from Social Security, interest, IRA distributions, things like that. And then in addition to that, you might have capital gains and dividend income, which is taxed at a different rate. So the standard deduction can come in and wipe out the ordinary income that you have. And then if you have capital gain and dividend income on top of that, that falls within the the next two tax brackets, the tax rate on that um, is 0%. So depending on how you structure your income, you can really save a lot of taxes. And here's what I was going to say, too, is that we have clients that they're they're retired, but they're still doing like some jobs, not that they have to, but they do because they want to be involved. I mean, on top of that, because it's worked or or earned income, uh, they can put that money into a IRA and get a deduction for that as well. Put it into an IRA, can put it into a Roth. Yeah, as long as you have earned income, you can contribute to any type of retirement account, uh, no matter your age, or used to be an age limit, but not anymore. So, you know, you're right, Brent. In some cases, you might have someone who retires. Um, they start collecting their income, and you know their their income's low because they have the standard deduction, and then the lower brackets. And then if they do start working a couple years later, um, you know maybe they don't want to have that much income on paper because it, that could push them up into a higher tax rate. So then you look at, you know, well, where can we push that into different accounts to try and mitigate that? Um, but ultimately, you know, that's why it's helpful to understand these changes every year so that you can make adjustments to not only where you're putting money into, but also, you know, where you're, where you're pulling from. Because the nice thing about retirement is you only need to generate as much income as you need for for cash flow. So, for example, when you're working, you might make 
you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, let's say, but you're not spending all of that. But even though you're not spending all of it, you're still taxed on it because that's what your income is. When you get into retirement, you only need to generate as much cash flow uh, as you need to satisfy your lifestyle. And, you know, ultimately you want to figure out the best way to do that, but you get a lot more flexibility as you go into retirement on, on how to create that cash flow. And Harrison, these are all things, uh, as a financial planner, you, you look for someone, not just, uh, sell them mutual funds, but say, Oh, you know, here's different things you can do to reduce your taxes, increase your retirement income, all these different, uh, ideas for people. Yeah. And I mean, all these things that we talk about, they can't be handled or, or satisfied by, buying something or buying a product or anything it's all about planning how do we create income how do we structure assets how do we um you know deal with cash flow over time how is that gonna fall into the tax brackets is there something we should do this year versus next year is there something that we should put off down the road so you know it's just using the assets and cash flow that's already there and structuring it in a way that's going to create more value right well harrison thank you very much we appreciate it Uh, have a great weekend and we'll see you on monday morning All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. Okay. Bye-bye. Again, that is uh, Harrison Johnson. He is our financial planner. He is a fee-based planner. He does not uh, sell you annuities or insurance or any commission products. He's on a salary with Wilsey Asset Management. If you'd like a free consultation with him to review your financial plan or maybe set up a financial plan, uh, give him a call at the office, 858-546-4306. Again, that's 858-546-4306. Or send him an email at the website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And on that website, it's about, uh, oh, it's towards the end on the top. You'll see Meet the Team. You can see more information there about uh, Harrison as well. Or it says free consultation at the top. You just click that button and you're good to go. What is wrong with me? I should have saw that right away. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for pointing that out. And actually, there's a phone number of the office right at the top of the website as well. All right. uh, Phone number is here, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Going back to the emails here, we have one uh, from Zach here saying, could you look into Verizon, symbol VZ, if time permits? I recently bought some shares after waiting quite some time for the stock to go down. The dividend is around 8%. The PE looks good, and the return on equity is better than the industry. But I wonder about their debt and their sales growth. I'm hoping it's a hold, but uh, is it a dividend trap? Thanks always. Love the show. Well, let's pull up a Verizon ri- uh, uh, Wireless here. Again, their symbol is VZ. In the telecom <coughs> community, <coughs> excuse me, uh, telecom services industry, uh, only one percent uh, float on the short side, sixty-four percent institutional owned. I use, I know those used to be a lot higher, so the institutions are selling out of this this uh, industry here. But we do have a good start on the PE ratio. It's uh, seven point two versus twenty-five point three. Price of sales one point one versus one point two. Price to book value one point five versus one point six. And price to cash flow is four versus 4.6, but unfortunately, the peg ratio, which tells you how much you're paying for the the future growth of the company, is not good. It's 13.2 versus 5.7, so that's very disappointing. You're paying a lot for the future growth of this company. Now, over the last year, the earnings uh, were up 8%, about half the industry at 15.6. Sales, unfortunately, down 1.1%. That did beat the industry at a decline of 1.8%. The five-year growth for uh, Verizon 
is only 0.6 versus the industry at 8.9. And the dividend yield is 7.5%. They use 53% of their earnings to pay that out. Look at the balance sheet. Now, this was a disappointment here. I mean, current ratio 0.7 versus 0.8. I thought that would be higher, especially seeing a debt to equity of 1.8 versus 1.7. I do remember days many years ago when they did not have so much debt, but I think because they're trying to build out so many things, maybe giving phones away, their debt is just uh, getting uh, getting away from them, I believe. Uh, net profit margin does look good, 15.6 versus 6.4. Uh, return to equity, 21.4. That is better than the industry at 12.3. Chase, what do you got? Yeah, so current price here for Verizon's $35.71. 52-week uh, range here, $30.14 as the low. The high stands at $44.72. So it's actually up about 20% from the low there. But year-to-date, it's still down about 11%. Now, if we go forward for the company, again, we got to, let's see here, December 2024, we see estimated earnings per share $4.62. It gives us a very attractive target sell price of $76.69, trading at forward PE multiple about seven, eight times. So again, very, very attractive. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking at growth rates here. December 2023, the earnings are estimated to fall about 10%. Next year, they're estimated to fall another 2%. One thing we talked about, the higher interest rates, that could really impact a company like Verizon because as interest rates are maintaining that kind of higher for longer mantra, so to speak, well, that debt starts to mature and you're having debt from 2 3 4% perhaps now maturing and you're having to refinance at maybe 8 9%. That is a big cut to the the earnings per share. How are they going to be growing outside of that to offset the, the potential interest expense coming their way? And and we don't hold Verizon. Uh, we did uh, hold before AT and T, which we no longer hold AT and T. But uh, AT and T had some good growth plans, some good cash flow increases. I don't know if the same was uh, true for uh, Verizon or not. But uh, you, you really got to look at this and what really people say, oh, it's Verizon, it's going to be fine, I get a 7% dividend. You, you got to be careful of making those decisions because you're correct. I mean, if they have a lot of debt and debt is, you know, increasing plus interest rates are increasing, that could really hurt the earnings even more going forward, which you may get a 7 7.5% dividend. But if the stock falls, t- you know, 10 12%, you're, you're going backwards. So I would be very careful of this. I, I'm not even sure if it's worth the research. You know, I, I will say as well, the, the other thing that, that is still out there, I mean, there was that Wall Street Journal story, and, and frankly, this is why we sold AT&T with all the lead cabling and the potential risk there to society, and we're surprised nothing came of that. Now, it was a few months ago now that the story <laughs> surfaced, but it could still be lingering in the background. All of a sudden, something could happen maybe next year, maybe two years from now, where that is a big hit to them. So that is something, again, we don't hold AT&T anymore, so we kind of stopped looking into that potential issue. But if I held AT&T, Verizon, uh, those companies, I would want to understand, is that risk gone or is that still in the background? Because you got to look at the 3M lawsuit, too, that occurred with the uh, earplugs. That took a lot of time to kind of go, same with their forever chemicals. Yeah, I'm not sure how long it took that lawsuit to come out. I know it took a long time once it was there. But I still remember this This article I read was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, inside, I think, on page 9 and 10, two full pages, and things in there, like uh, uh, this one that was uh, was in New Jersey, and there's these low-lying cables that are right above a kid's bus stop. 
I mean, if those kids start getting cancer or some law firm sees, wait a minute here, that that's a lawsuit just waiting to happen. And and I, I am shocked that nothing has come out. And AT&T and Verizon said, oh, we got it covered and so forth. But it doesn't matter if you have it covered if kids that are at that bus stop start developing cancer or signs of that. Also, too, I think there was something with Lake Tahoe where there was women that said we can't get pregnant now because we want to swim. I, I am just shocked that in our society, and I'm uh, part of me may be glad to see it because I think there's too many lawsuits going on, but this is one that I am shocked that we've not seen a lawsuit yet. And they, some big law firm could be putting it together. Maybe it takes a year to put that together. I don't know. And what could in theory be happening is the dollars get bigger the more numbers that you have in terms of people suing, obviously. So instead of, you know, maybe one woman that can't get pregnant suing Verizon, AT&T, it's like, well, we want to pull more people into this lawsuit because then you can really drive a a much bigger issue. So, I mean, I don't know. It's something that you really have to understand. Is is that still a potential risk there? Because that that could be devastating right. to high debt businesses. And I would assume uh, whoever had those uh, low-lying cables, uh, AT&T or Verizon, I would assume by now with that article, they probably cleaned those up. If they didn't, they're pretty foolish for not cleaning that up. So, all right. Uh, phone numbers here, 833-288-0973. And by the way, that uh, did, does uh, help out uh, with the who, – who, who sent that one? Did I say it was, was Zach? Zach. Zach, yeah, so Zach. So ho- hopefully that helps out. Uh, we got – you know, actually we're getting through quite a bit uh, quite a bit of the emails here that have been building up for us. Uh, I have another one here from Barbara. Says, uh, hi, Brent. I don't uh, don't know if that link works uh, regarding the article on Texas Roadhouse Restaurant, but what do you think about their stock investment-wise? My friend got a job there, not me, uh, Barbara. So I think she probably sent us somewhere in this email uh, the email address, or not the email, but the uh, website for Texas Roadhouse. Did she give me the symbol here? I have it. Oh, it's, you have Yeah, T-X-R-H. You know, TXRH. You know, and this is one I looked at uh, years ago, TXRH. And uh, years ago, I, I really liked this one. I remember it traded around $40 a share. I liked it. Uh, we'll look at the numbers, kind of comment more about it as we go along here. Coming again is a Texas Roadhouse Restaurant symbol, TXRH. 4.3% float on the short side, no problem there. 102.9% institutional ownership because of the shortness on the float there. Uh, P ratio, eh, 23.9, not good, but the industry is at 28.1. Price of sales, 1.6 versus 2.6. Price to book value, 6.3 versus 21.3. And then price of cash flow is 13.8 versus 17.3. Does have a good peg ratio, 1.3 versus 6.6, so that's a positive. Now, I'm glad to see this. The earnings over the last year are up 13.3%, but the industry is up 45.5, so surprised on that. Sales for Texas Roadhouse up 14.8 versus 17.5, and they have a five-year growth of 17.7 above the industry at 12. Now, they do pay a dividend of 2.1%, use 48% of their earnings to pay that out. Looking at the balance sheet, this is not good. A current ratio of 0.3% versus 1.3. Even the quick ratio is 0.3. So they do not have a lot of liquidity, which could be a problem. They they could be forced into bankruptcy. Debt to equity is okay at 0.7 versus 0.9. Net profit margin 6.5 versus six, uh, versus 9.2. And return to equity is a positive 26.5 
versus a negative 189. Chase, what do you got? Yeah, so interesting on uh, Texas Roadhouse, I, I was curious on if they're a franchise model or if they own an operate model. Um, like Chipotle doesn't franchise necessarily. They, they own and operate their restaurants where uh, McDonald's franchises out, essentially. It looks like Texas Roadhouse actually operates and franchises restaurants. So I'd be curious on the breakdown between the two. Do they franchise more or own and operate more? Because it, it is very interesting. Under the franchise model, the, the balance sheets always look so terrible because they're so asset light yeah. that there's no assets really to counteract the debt. So that would be something to kind of look at and understand if it makes sense from an investment perspective. But the current price here for Texas Roadhouse is $104.19. The 52-week low is $90.38. And the high here, $118.16. Now we go forward to, again, December 2024. We see the estimated earnings per share, $5.28. Unfortunately, it gives us a target sell price here of just $87.65. So it's trading for darn near close to 20 times those future earnings. And I got to say, I don't like it from a, a value investing standpoint, but I'm shocked that earnings are estimated to grow 14% this yeah. year, estimated to grow close to 17% next year. Where the heck is this earnings growth coming from? <laughs> we know that labor costs have gone up quite yeah. dramatically in the restaurant industry. Food costs are up. Food costs are up. It's like, how is this company growing earnings so dramatically? Uh, they could be opening new new restaurants, which could be a problem. Uh, I still see that current ratio, and you are correct, perhaps with a franchise model, that wouldn't be a problem. But still, 0.3% in the current ratio. Very rarely do you see such low liquidity. And even if you're a franchise model, yeah, it may change your debt to equity around somewhat, but I, you still need liquidity running oh, a yeah. business. And and so I, with the valuation side of being so high, uh, the the, the concerns perhaps on the current ratio, I would say, Barbara, it's, it's not worth looking into. It's, it's just too many uh, negatives right off the bat. Uh, maybe a great place to re to eat. I think they have one in Temecula, I think, do they? Texas Potentially. I, I think there's one somewhere around here. But, you know, I, I got to say I'm surprised, too, because, you know, uh, discretionary spending at restaurants has not slowed down. You know, yeah. it stayed very strong. But... With that, it's not like they saw a big dip over the last two. I mean, restaurant spending's held up well. I don't think restaurant spending is going to accelerate over the next two years either. Right. So it, it's, it's again, kind of a interesting story here. It, it makes me question those future growth numbers as well without further understanding where that growth can come from. It, it, it's, again, not something we would even look at investing in because of the high valuations. But from an overall standpoint, it, it, I have curiosity about where that growth's coming from. Right. <laughs> and, and overall, restaurants have changed over the years. It used to be it was a, a pleasure or something you could do. It, it was not a necessity. It has now been classed more as a necessity because you got both parents working. Many times they just don't have the time. With the this game from COVID, where now I've seen people many times at a restaurant, people come in, pick up the food and go. Um, so the to-go orders are, I think, up tremendously from 2019. So... You know, restaurants are, are no longer just a, you know, well, it's nice to go to the restaurant. It's it is more a necessity because we don't want to cook. So they uh, they they they're doing well, but I just want to be careful what you pay for any of course restaurant, or especially business. with the questionable balance sheet as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you'd you'd hate to get in a restaurant that you thought was going to be good and then all of a sudden they went uh, bankrupt. Uh, well, let's talk about the brokers' commission rates uh, here because this was was. Unfortunately, we talked about the AT&T situation. Well, a jury in the Western District of Missouri found that the National Association of Realtors 
NAR and several real estate companies and affiliates have conspired to raise or stabilize broker commissions uh, rates that are paid by sellers. The jury ordered a judgment of $1.78 billion in damages and uh, damages could result, total damages could result in the NAR and brokerage, brokerages paying roughly $5.35 billion. This could also open the door to similar lawsuits in other states. Courts seem to be getting out of hand awarding these massive amounts in cases against businesses. Now, in my opinion here, juries don't have a clue what it takes to run a business or, frankly, be a realtor. The verdict will be appealed, but it still could send shockwaves around the country complaining that a typical seller commission of 5.5% is more than double the 2% rate sellers pay in other countries such as the UK, Sweden, Hong Kong. My feeling is we are a free country, and if somebody does not like the commissions, well, they're being charged by that realtor. They can shop around, or frankly, you can do it yourself too if you wanted. <laughs> but I do wonder how many uh, jurors on that jury were in sales or have ever sold real estate for a living. I mean, how can they actually judge what realtors receive in commissions without knowing the ins and outs of that particular business? I uh, do really think it's unfortunate our, our legal system has many areas that it, it could improve here. You, you, you know, and one thing about this to comment on this is that uh, I, I do think that real estate commissions could be too high because they've been the same for years. Back when houses were $100,000, the, the normal rate was 6%. Now houses are a million dollars. Now they're, they're yeah. still 6%. So there is some room there. <clears throat> but to compare our commission rates on real estate to United Kingdom or Sweden, I don't think that's a good comparison. No, I, I don't think it's a good comparison either. I mean, there are different types of economies at the end of the day. And, and also, I, I don't think that that should have resulted in lawsuits. I mean, maybe we'd need to change the, the structure. But again, it, people, if they don't want to pay it, then, you know, there are different ways to kind of create that supply and demand and balance to, to lower the cost. <clears throat> I mean, the, the lawsuit is just ludicrous in my mind. And I mean, I... I do wonder how it's going to impact the the commissions for for real estate or for the realtors at the end of the day. And you know, the big thing I've been reading is you know the seller commission will probably still be there, but maybe the buying commission is uh, changed a little bit. Maybe yeah. you don't get as much for being a buyer's agent, which again that could have problems as well for the industry. And, and I mean, and there are good realtors out there, and there's bad realtors. You you if you're looking at selling your home, you you need to kind of really understand what that realtor is. Same same thing with you know good advisors and bad advisors. And and there's I know there's bad realtors out there that are charging the full probably six percent, and people just don't know they don't understand more. You you've got to do your own homework when you're selling your home or buying a home to understand the uh, the the fundamentals of how to how the process works. Yeah, because I do worry some people if like the buyer's agents kind of decrease because they're not really. Getting getting compensated any longer that or people the buyers actually have to now pay their pay their buyer's agent now they're like I'm just going to do it myself I mean you could actually run into some big problems buying a house and cuz you don't know what to no. look for and you don't know the contracts so I mean that's where you know realtors do provide value at the end of the day but you know I think it you got to be careful in understanding what you're paying and also what you're getting in terms of value from the the realtor as well I will say with the changes of times, because back 20 years ago, you needed a realtor to take you around to show houses. Now with Zillow, I mean, these other, you know, online stuff, you can pretty much see a house, go see it yourself. I would not recommend you go much beyond that because then you can either hire a realtor to help you understand the ins and outs or 
You're going to be in trouble. Yep. Wow. Closing bell came quick today. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And be sure to visit that website, Smart Investing. 2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. Be sure to send your email questions you have also for the show. Have a great day. We'll talk more next week right here on the Smart Investing Show. To think that I did all that and may I say